Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience Amateur Hour. Hello, friends. I have thoroughly enjoyed my very relaxing break, and I'm working on other hobbies and goals. I actually recently started getting into archery, and it turns out that there's much more to archery than just like shooting at a set range of targets. Um, There are these hiking trails all over the place with bales set up every few hundred feet, and you wander, and you do some really cool shots, and you try to shoot like amidst the trees. It's, It's very cool. The only downside is that if you're not very good like me, uh, then you often overshoot or undershoot, and then you can go trudging through the underbrush to find your arrows, and sometimes you don't even find them. But I am slowly getting back into writing season two. I wanted to let you guys know that application season has begun, so I beg your patience while I balance writing the podcast and my future career goals. But yes, let's head back to the neuroscience. Let's talk about the neuroscience of epilepsy and seizures. So epilepsy is a disorder where the neural activity of the brain is disturbed, causing seizures. Now, there are a bunch of different kinds of seizures, and they depend on the severity, where in the brain they originate, and how far they spread. Some can last seconds and others minutes. Now, if a seizure lasts any longer than five minutes, get that person to a hospital. They are not okay, and they need to see the inside of an emergency room. Symptoms of a seizure do vary, and they depend on the type of seizure, but generally uh, think temporary confusion, staring spells, uncontrollable jerking of the arms and legs, kind of what you would expect if like an actor depicted a seizure on Grey's Anatomy or something, Um, but also loss of consciousness or even cognitive and emotional symptoms are signs of seizures, so things like fear or anxiety. Now, there are two major different kinds of seizures focal seizures, and generalized seizures. You may have heard to them refer to differently, such as partial seizures instead of focal seizures, but it turns out that seizures are so complicated and can vary so much that they're often reclassified. I found this paper from 2017 that stated that the International League Against Epilepsy had put forth new operational classifications, so that's what I'm largely basing my knowledge off of. That and the website for Johns Hopkins. So, uh, blame them. (laughs) So, focal seizures start on one side of the brain and can spread across to the other side of the brain. And these can cause mild or severe symptoms. So, I guess the naming makes sense. Focal as in it starts with a point of focus. The electrical activity of the seizure can remain in just one sensory or motor area of the brain, resulting in something called a focal aware seizure, where the person is aware of their surroundings but might notice that they feel weird or that their body is not moving like it's supposed to. Which is kind of creepy, right? Like you're completely aware of your body and you're having a seizure. Generalized seizures can start as focal seizures and then spread to both sides of the brain, or they can actually start simultaneously on both sides of the cortex of the brain. They're also subdivided further. There are absent seizures, or petite mal, which, if I remember my high school friend correctly, means small bad, something like that. These absent seizures mostly show up as brief staring episodes in children, and mostly between four and six. The next, co- the next kind is called myoclonic seizures, which consists of sudden body movements or jerks involving the head, arms, and neck. As it turns out, we experience myoclonic seizures 
all the time, whether it's hiccups or a sudden jerk as we're falling asleep, but it's not an epilepsy disorder unless these seizures are happening repeatedly and concurrently. So then we've got tonic and atonic seizures, otherwise known as drop attacks. Tonic means a sudden stiffness of the arms and bodies, which can cause falls and injuries, and atonic means that the individual completely loses body tone, which can also result in collapsing. Some people also present with a tonic episode followed by an atonic episode, conveniently called a tonic-atonic seizure. <laughs> and finally, we get tonic-clonic and tonic, comma, clonic, and tonic hyphen clonic seizures. Oh, say that three times fast. Uh, these are known as grand mal seizures, which, as my, my very poor French says, uh, big bad. So this is just when any one of the former seizures I just talked about spreads until it's uncontrollable. This is also exactly what you're thinking of when you think of a seizure. Violent, uncontrollable muscle contractions and a loss of consciousness. So what's actually going on in the brain? What does it mean when a seizure starts on one side of the brain and spreads to the other? Let's find out together. So the brain has normal rhythms and synchronous activity that underlies our basic functioning. In a very simplistic way of looking at it, we have accelerators of electrical activity in the brain, excitatory circuits, and we have brakes, which are inhibitory circuits. Excitatory circuits are those where the activity of one neuron increases the activity of the subsequent neuron, and inhibitory circuits are those where the activity of one neuron decreases the activity of the subsequent neuron. And they serve various and specific purposes across the brain. So when we have an imbalance of these inhibitory quote-unquote breaks, we have a problem. There's nothing that can stop this feed-forward loop of excitation. It builds and it builds and it builds until it becomes a hyper-excitable network. And this process is called epileptogenesis. So what happens when we have too much excitation in the cortex? Well, to answer that question, we're first going to talk about the anatomical structure of the cortex. So the cortex is the kind of the outer layer of our brains, and it's made up of three to six layers of neurons. Now, the phylogenetically oldest part of the cortex is the hippocampus, which is one of my favorite brain regions. And then we have the neocortex on top, which is made up of six distinct cell layers. Now, the cortex includes two general classes of neurons. We have projection, or principal neurons, which are called pyramidal neurons, which, as the name suggests, project to neurons in distant areas of the brain. These primarily form excitatory synapses and use neurotransmitters like glutamate. In contrast, we have interneurons, called basket cells, which don't project very far. They kind of form local circuits with the neurons around them instead. And these interneurons form inhibitory synapses with projection neurons and other interneurons. And these are neurons that use the neurotransmitter GABA. So we not, now we've got the key players. We've got these pyramidal neurons that project to distant areas of the brain. And we've got these interneurons, which kind of form local circuits. But another key aspect is their organization. Let's focus first on two pretty well-known brain regions, the dentate gyrus and the hippocampus. In the dentate gyrus, connections to the network can directly activate projection cells and can activate local inhibitory interneurons simultaneously. These interneurons will inhibit projection cells in their near vicinity, kind of this feed-forward inhibition. These activated projection neurons can also activate interneurons, which act on projection neurons, which is actually feedback inhibition. 
The big takeaway from this organization is that if we get a bunch of excitatory input, we can increase the excitability of the whole network. In addition, if we lose any of these inhibitory neurons, we increase the excitability of the network. Cool. So now we've got kind of a basic understanding of the wiring of the cortex, and it's very basic. Uh, so what happens if we get an imbalance of these inhibitory and excitatory neurons? That excitability spreads even across the brain to the other hemisphere via the corpus callosum. So the corpus callosum is a large bundle of 200 million myelinated fibers that allow communication between the left and the right sides of the brain. It turns out that if you cut the corpus callosum, a procedure known as a colostomy, it helps reduce the severity and frequency of secondary generalization in patients, reducing the negative effects of seizures. But that's kind of one of those like last-ditch efforts to help someone when like nothing else works, no diet, no medication, no lifestyle changes, nothing. There's a bunch of intense side effects of this procedure, including problems with balance, more partial seizures on one side, stroke, speech problems, pretty much all the things that you would expect to happen if you kind of cut the thing that allows the two hemispheres of our brain to talk to each other. But yeah, that, that, is, that is a possible treatment, which is kind of interesting. So now we know that seizures are these massive episodes of imbalance between excitation and inhibition that, based on the structure of the cortex, are capable of spreading across the brain and wreaking havoc on our bodies. So how do we detect them? Well, with a variety of probes and measures, but the most important player is the EEG, the good old electroencephalogram. <laughs> the EEG has two categories of abnormal activity. Interictal, abnormal signals recorded between epileptic seizures, and ictal, abnormal signals recording during an epileptic seizure. Now, I feel like this would be easier to look at, so I will post a picture on Instagram, but an interictal signal is occasional transient waveforms, while an ictal signal is composed of continuous discharge of wave waveforms of different amplitudes and frequencies. Now, there's two different kinds of EEGs as well. There's an invasive EEG and a scalp EEG. And I was once a broke college student, and I technically I'm still broke now, but I did research studies for money because I went to college in a huge research institution and they always needed human participants. And all I remember from the scalp EEG is that they basically put lube all over your head and your hair. Um, and that's to ensure like conductivity between the electrical probes and your scalp. And it's nasty. <laughs> but it is a great technique for measuring electrical activity in the cortex. An invasive EEG, in contrast, is when electrodes are implanted in the skull, onto the surface of the brain, or even within the brain itself. And these signals are analyzed by a trained physician, and bada-beam, bada-boom, we've got seizure detection. Seizures sound like pretty terrifying events, right? Seizures and epilepsy are huge points of research. Some people are looking into altered adult neurogenesis, which is the growth of new neurons in the hippocampus, in individuals with temporal lobe epilepsy. Um, I found a paper published in April of this year in Nature, but unfortunately it's blocked behind a paywall. And the whole damn point of this podcast is that the sources are open source and easily accessible for everybody, so oof. But their abstract, which I read through, says that a longer duration of epilepsy is associated with a sharp decline of neuronal production, which is really cool, but you know, I can't really say much more than that. 
if I can't really look at the paper. Also, damn paywalls. <laughs> Do you ever think about how paywalls probably shouldn't exist and all of science should be open source and easily accessible to researchers and the public at large and universities and institutions shouldn't need to pay? Um, eLife is a fantastic resource from that point of view, just because it's completely open source, it just removes the barrier. And I know that that isn't how the world works and we need to pay for things, but I wish science was more open source. Um, also, did you know that professors have to pay to submit a research paper to a journal in the first place? It's like $1,000 or like $5,000 or something. Um, but if you are looking for cool research papers and you don't want to find them behind a paywall, uh, go to BioArchive. Uh, it's a place where researchers publish their preprints. So if you're interested in the most current, even though it's not peer-reviewed research, that's the place. And it's free. I'm going to post a link. Uh, in fact, I might make a whole new like episode or post or something about accessibility and academic research and resources and all that stuff. But sorry, rant over. <laughs> Epilepsy current research. So there's quite a bit of research that's going into causes of epilepsy, many of which are genetic. In general, though, researchers believe that a genetic predisposition coupled with environmental factors, so nature plus nurture, leads to epilepsy. Let's dive into that genetic component, though. It turns out that there are a bunch of genes which are linked to a predisposition to epilepsy. One example is CD CDKL5 deficiency disorder, which is a rare condition that's linked to the X chromosome. If you remember from high school science, the way that gender works is that a mother contributes two X chromosomes to her child, and a father will contribute one X chromosome and Y chromosome, one Y chromosome. So the CDKL5 protein, which in fact stands for cyclin-dependent kinase-like 5, um, that is coded for on this X chromosome, makes a protein that is needed for normal brain and neuron development. When there are mutations in this gene, it leads to seizures in the first few months of life and problems with development of the nervous system later in life. The specific wombo combo of problems is called developmental and epileptic encephalopathy. So how do we treat epilepsy? Is it treatable in the first place? Well, first of all, people can take medication anti-epileptic drugs to control their seizures. There are a variety of these drugs, but the way that they work is by modulating voltage-gated sodium and calcium channels, enhancing GABA receptor-mediated synaptic inhibition, and inhibiting glutamate receptor-mediated synaptic excitation. And that makes sense, right? For example, sodium channel-blocking anti-epileptic drugs such as phenotion or carbamazepine inhibit high-frequency repetitive spikes during seizure activity because they bind preferentially to depolarized sodium channels and induce a non-conducting state. So it's as if these channels were completely inactivated. The neurons then recover much more slowly from their excited states, so it kind of prevents this cascade of excitatory activity across the brain that results in a seizure. But drugs often don't completely solve the problem. There are also surgical interventions, like the colostomy procedure I mentioned a little while ago, where they sever the bundles of fibers that connect the two hemispheres of the brain to each other. They might also remove a small part of the brain that seems to be causing the problem. Or doctors can implant a small electrical device inside the body to control seizures. Finally, some medical professionals recommend going on a ketogenic diet, which is one, of, which is one that's high in fats and low in carbs. And this diet is thought to help control or minimize seizures, 
But from my understanding, it needs to be done under very strict supervision from a dietitian because of the risk of diabetes and cardiovascular disease. But that is a bite-sized look at the neuroscience of epilepsy and seizures. I've cited all my relevant sources and papers in the show notes, and you should keep an eye out on Instagram for some cool figures that I think are pertinent. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neurosciencemateurhour at gmail.com or DM me at neurosciencemateurhour on Instagram. This podcast is available on pretty much any platform I can think of, so please recommend it to your friends and loved ones. Also, if you are feeling so inclined to financially support my work, please buy me a cup of coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash neuroscience. Thank you. Also, if you have something you really want to learn about, please contact me and you'll probably see an episode about it soon. Happy researching. I hope to see you again.